Welcome to this panel discussion today. I'm so excited to see everybody. Do you all remember which words of the creed that we're on? I believe, yes, it's not that hard. (laughs) We're still on those two words. We'll add some more words to it uh, next week. Still on the words, I believe. What is an I? What is a human being? And what does it mean to believe something? We've been looking at this through the prism of the book of Genesis, in particular in the Bible. Do these characters believe things? How could they not believe in God? How could you not believe in God if you hear God speaking to you? Then again, How could you not believe in God or how could you believe in God when you hear God speaking to you and saying what God said to Abraham in Genesis 22? Do you remember this famous passage? He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him up to a mountain that I will show you and kill him, make a sacrifice of him. I mean, if you heard a voice like that, would you just assume that that was God telling you to, to murder, to kill your own child? How in the world can Abraham hear something like that and believe it? I don't know. Uh, This is a tough question to start with our panelists, but I do want to start with them on this. I want to introduce them to you first. Um, We'll start over here. Dr. Nijay Gupta is is professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary. That's the seminary that's attached to our university. Um, Nijay has a PhD from Durham in the UK, so he went overseas to do this. It's very exotic. We welcome you, Dr. Gupta, to this Thank you very much. Yeah. Good to be here. Dr. Caitlin Corning is professor of history here at George Fox University. She has been a George Fox University Teacher of the Year. Um, She's the author of, what's that book called? A Short Guide, The Whole World's History in One Book. What is that called? I would say Introduction to World History. An Introduction to World History. Um, She's an historian. Um, She's a dear and trusted colleague of mine and a mentor to all of us here at this university. Dr. Corning, welcome to you. Thank you. Yeah. And last but not least, on my, my left here, Dr. Joseph Clare. Um, Dr. Claire is Dean of the College of Christian Studies, which is the department I teach in, um, also liberal arts, also the Honors College. Um, Dr. Claire has his PhD from Princeton University, and his specialty is Augustine, an early church thinker that lived uh, in the 400s, roughly, AD, and who was super influential about basically all of the topics we're going to be talking about in this class, really influential for all of theology. Dr. Claire, I'm so, so glad you could join us. Glad to be here. Yes. Oh, those voices are nice and clear. (laughs) He's like the voice of God, just booming out here in the (laughs) microphone. Dr. Dr. Gupta, as a biblical scholar, I wonder if I could start with you and just ask, that story of Abraham asking, being asked by God to kill. I mean, is this, I don't know, should we read this and should we have like ethical and moral problems with this? Are we just supposed to believe that God can just ask us to kill someone? Or is that like a one-time deal for Abraham or... How do you analyze a text like that? Thanks for starting with an easy question. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Uh, If we can go back just to the idea of belief and what it means, um, we have to remember that people in the ancient world, um, they didn't really wonder whether or not God exists. That wasn't really an issue. Mm. They may have debated over which God is most powerful. um, And you kind of like, you know, for us it's like sports where we're like, my team's better than your team. In the ancient world it was deities. My, my God can beat up your God. Uh, now, to understand Abraham, you have to understand the relationship that Abraham had with this foreign God, right? Abraham is from this other place, Ur of the Chaldeans. He had his own gods, uh, many probably. Presumably. I mean, the text is silent, but we have right. to assume, right? Right. And they're yeah. ancestral gods. You worship the gods of your, your fathers and forefathers, and there's an expectation that you will respect those gods. And then Genesis 12 tells us God, this 
God of Israel, which isn't God of Israel because there's no Israel, but there's other gods seemingly, <laughs> tells him, go somewhere else. Go somewhere really, really far away. People didn't travel that far back then. Mm. You, you, you know, traveling far was like 10 miles. Right. And so to go really far away and to say, I'm going to do all these things for you, this is weird. It, it is this kind of leap of faith that we, th that we think of. He has to bank everything, his family, his reputation, his honor on going out and doing all this. And um, Christian belief, and as we think about it, is not about just randomly believing things. Do you believe in aliens? It's about putting yourself in a position of trust when this person, think about it, not, you know, sometimes we don't think of God as a person. So this person asks you to do things that are against the grain. And this story really is about mm -hmm. trust. Um, I, I, the ethical issues are all right. all really cha because challenging. Because he, tr he trusts, sure. right? I mean, there's not even a kickback. Abraham doesn't say, hey, I don't know if I'm okay with murder, you know, but I guess if you say so, you're God. He just says, he just, there's actually no speech at all. Did you notice this in your reading of Genesis? He doesn't even, it's just, there they go and they start going. Just like Abraham did in chapter 12 uh, that you pointed out, um, when Abraham just leaves, right? I, I, at the end of the day, I think Abraham would have realized this was a paradox because he's already promised a huge family, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a sense of paradox in that. Mm. But um, I think we get off track if we treat belief as just something that happens in the brain. Um, hmm. Do you believe in ghosts or something like that? That's not what Genesis is about. Like belief in that sense would be defined as mental assent to an idea, like as opposed to what other way would there be? I mean, isn't that what belief is? Well, the whole Testament, but even Genesis is about covenant. And covenant is about a relationship of trust, mutuality, and really banking on the other person. It's like the three-legged race, mm -hmm. right? You're getting into a three-legged race with God. And it's like, <laughs> if you don't run with him, he's going to drag you. <laughs> I mean, covenant is about this deep relationship, yeah. and you got to run with it. Dr. Corning, do you want to get in on this? I mean, when you think about that story and you think about the type of belief that, that Abraham has, does that strike you as the kind of belief that you have as a person of faith, just in terms of like, I, I don't know, what, what, what do you think about this story? That is a great question. I think, um, yeah, if, if God suddenly appeared to me and or I, I felt like that's what God was telling me to do, I, I would think maybe I was needed some psychiatric help. Right? Like um, so I, mean, so <laughs> I think that's my first response in terms of, of what's, if it was just like today for me. But I yeah. think that um, that is true that we're, we're dealing in a world in which um, Abraham ha knows something about this God. There is a relationship. This isn't the very first thing God calls him to do. Um, and so there may be some senses in which you trust the, that relationship that, that is important, that this is a matter of the heart as well as the, mm -hmm. of the brain right. um, when we come to belief. Um, but I think, because uh, it, it isn't knowing, I think there is a difference between belief and, and knowing, mm -hmm. um, that belief is a little bit of that leap of faith maybe within mm -hmm. that, although it's not just, it's not just believing anything and everything and being right. pushed to the winds. Yeah, so belief is not just gullibility to whatever. We'll come back to this. I wonder if I could pitch it over to Dr. Claire and ask you, do you think the creed would be better if it started saying, I know, 
I know there's a God. Why don't we confess that? Why say I believe as opposed to saying I know? Dr. Corning has brought up this idea of knowing. Why not? W- would the creed be better if it started, I know there's a God. I don't need to say belief. I don't need to talk like that. I know it. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's a fascinating question. I mean, you have to kind of think in your own lives, like what are the things you think you know about the world, about yourself, about... God, I mean, I know that I have a shirt on, as far as I can tell. Um, I think it's green. I actually think this is like a very beautiful forest green, kind of a moss color. But if you're colorblind in here, um, maybe you're not seeing the same green. Maybe I'm colorblind, and I'm, this is actually a blue shirt. I don't know. But I think I know I have a shirt on. I think I know it's green. Traditionally, in the history of Western philosophy, we've talked about knowledge of two kinds. Have you ever heard about this empirical knowledge, like the kind of knowledge you get from your five senses, especially sight, and then internal or logical knowledge that you get from knowing one plus one equals two, or a logical statement like if, then, if, P, and Q. If P, no, no, I I can't do logic. It's too early for that. But we know that there's kind of this internal rational knowledge and external empirical knowledge. Then the question is, what's the difference between believing something and knowing it in either of those those ways that we think of as having certainty? The reality is that most of life's really interesting questions don't yield themselves to us on the basis of that rational knowing, either empirically or through logic, including like the great questions of physics, like the origin of the cosmos and the Big Bang and how we think about Uh, the history of uh, the development of species. These are things that require knowledge, but there's also huge gaps and leaps in synthetic moments where you're beyond what you can know through either of those forms of knowledge, and so you're into a kind of belief about the world. And I think that... um, I think that Christianity forces you straight in Uh, to that terrain that says some of life's most interesting, important questions, like where in the world did humans come from? What in the world is the purpose of this life that we're living, ultimately? What could imaginably happen after death, given that we have like very little reporting from the other side? And you you and I are all headed on that freight train toward the end of our death, so sorry to surprise you existentially this morning it's very early in the morning it's very early in the morning but you're gonna (laughs) die right so you have to recognize that we've actually like been set loose in this world that the requirements of living the requirements of finding meaning and value and purpose are going to require believing stuff that you can't know with rational certainty of the internal logical or the external empirical source so why does the creed believe begin I believe, because all the stuff in there about creation and making of heaven and earth and the life to come and the world and everlasting, all that stuff is in the terrain of belief. But again, the really important distinction is how do you distinguish a kind of, a kind of belief which is uh, shrewd and thoughtful and wise from just like random gullibility. So my kids, I'm rambling on, I'm sorry, but my kids are young. <laughs> my kids are young enough right now that they're still trying to figure out if Santa Claus is real. And so this Christmas we have, so we have a nine-year-old, seven, now eight-year-old and five-year-old, another one on the way. And because the nine-year-old is like Mr. Science logic guy, he's kind of <laughs> spoiling the other two on Santa Claus. So I was asking the, the five-year-old, I was like, yeah, do you believe in 
Santa Maggie, you know, Christmas Eve. She's like, oh, no, I don't believe in Santa. It was very shocking to me, very sad for the five-year-old. I was like, well, why, you know? And she said, well, just look at the stovepipe, Dad, into the wood stove. There's no way fat Santa's coming down that stovepipe, let alone he would get burned if he did come down. And how could he do that all around the world on one night? It just doesn't make sense, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I didn't know what to say. And then, and then she said, but, Dad... Did you see that I lost my tooth? She had lost her tooth over Christmas. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. She's like, the tooth fairy's coming. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the tooth fairy's coming. I was like, well, how do you know the tooth fairies? You know, you don't believe in Santa. And she's like, well, obviously, tooth fairies are so small. They can just kind of come right through your window. And there's so many of them. So yeah. they can go all around the world anytime. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's interesting. That's actually pretty. See, she's already applying reason to try to figure out if the thing that she doesn't have firsthand, you know, empirical or logical knowledge of, if it exists. And that's what we do. And we apply that same thing to God. Like, does God exist? Is God real? But I think what Nije said, which really strikes me, is that the God of the Bible is not just like a mental object that you need to try to hold in mind. Like, do you think God is the origin of the cosmos. Do you think there was a meaningful origin? It's not, it's, did you hear God speak to your heart right now? And how are you going to respond in action? How are you going to respond in obedience? It's like a, it brings, it's not just a philosophical riddle. It's like, a, will you go offer your son on the hill? Uh, it's like, oh, it actually requires something. I'm going to stop rambling. No, it's, uh, it's, it's good. We let you ramble. I, in fact, I'll pitch it over to a student question. If I could go back to Dr. Corning and then Dr. Gupta as needed, a, question, uh, a student texted to ask, so are faith and belief the same thing? Where would faith come in if it's hard to believe? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, that could be a whole hour. Yeah. Um, so, well, I'll, so I'll try to do a quick answer. I think there are levels in which faith and belief can be synonymous. Uh, that there is a level of belief where it is, it's, it's outside empirical knowledge um, that God is Trinity. Well, okay. there's levels of belief, but it's based on traditions in the church, on, on the scriptures, on lots of thoughtful people, on community. So it's a belief in community. So in that sense, I think that faith, there is a level of faith. There's always a, it's faith seeking understanding would be the medieval you do. If you believe you have this faith that God exists and then you try to understand him. Um, and to understand more of what's involved in, in the faith and how we understand the scriptures and things. So I think it, it can certainly be um, some words that mm. can be interchanged. But it's striking that it's even posed that way, faith seeking understanding. It's not understanding seeking faith. Like there's a primacy to that moment of faith as we're, I guess, sort of defining it. I don't know, Dr. Gupta, what do you, what do you think about this? Are, are faith and belief the same thing? Is it which is, is, is something prime, is one of those primary? How does it work? That is a complicated question. I, I tend to use them interchangeably, but we tend to use belief language primarily in a brain sense, things that you do with your head. But we know how to use faith language as things that are bigger uh, or more comprehensive than that. Um, so we use the adjective faithful. So if a friend is faithful and true, um, then we, we treat that as kind of reliable. I want to go back to the I believe question from the creed, though, because yeah. I've been thinking about that. Why does the creed begin I believe? 
And it's important to know the creed doesn't exist to be filed away. The creed exists as a confession. Mm. Now, we don't really confess things nowadays, except if we're in trouble. But the concept of confession isn't a negative thing. We think of it as negative, like you go to confession if you're in the Catholic Church, or you give a confession in a trial. But the concept as it's used by the creed is really, we might think of it as a mission statement. Uh, we might think of it as something we put as a part of our public profile on Twitter, like, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about, and this is what shapes my life. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this because I study, you know, what, was, what were the early Christians like in the first century? That's like one of my primary areas of study. And I'm just going to share really quick something that probably almost none of you know, but it's really fascinating. In the first century, to be religious and to believe in God was to worship with a statue. To visit a god was to go visit a god in a temple with a statue there. And one of the weird things about Jews and Christians in the first century, these were the only group of people, as far as I understood, that were religious but didn't use cult statues. Because of that and because they didn't respect the Roman gods, the early Christians and Jews were called atheists. So if you've ever heard of a, a saint named Polycarp from the second century, it's a famous story about Polycarp, <laughs> uh, a, very, a, very bold and, and, uh, 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 a very bold Christian from the second century. He was called to appear before Caesar and, um, and basically confess, you know, uh, uh, turn against his faith or die. And Caesar says to him, I will spare your life if you say to the Christians who are about to be killed in the, you know, in the theater there, away with the atheists. And he turns to the crowds of Romans instead and says, away with the atheists. Now, he did get martyred then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, what the creed is all about is confession, saying, I believe this and not that. And when I used to teach a course in the creed, I would have students actually think through, if I say I believe in God the Father, I'm also saying I refuse to believe in X. And what is that X? If I say I believe in judgment, then I also believe I don't believe in X. And that's what you have to figure out. What do these beliefs mean when it comes to what you refuse to believe in? Mm -hmm. um, my parents are not Christians, they're Hindus. And it was a pretty big deal for me to become a Christian when I was 16. And it was really traumatic for our family. I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I was at that time a very good Indian. So I played tennis. And I worked hard at math and science. <laughs> and then I became a Christian. And then I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted then to become a person whose profession was to teach the Bible. And this brought a lot of shame on my family. Now, my parents and I have a good relationship now. But my beliefs forced me to do things that were really difficult for me, especially at that time. And even today, can I give you just one quick example? Go for it. Okay. So I was, <laughs> this is like a really dumb thing, but it really shows, I feel like it shows what it means for me to confess the creed. So I'm on an airplane, and I happen to be sitting in the exit row, which is kind of fun. Doesn't I call that the poor man's first class. Yes. The Thank exit you. Row. I and, and I was so happy. <laughs> And, you know, someone comes by and they, one of the, one of the flight attendants, and they ask you, 
if you're willing to sit there. Right. I'm happy to do that. Well, she asked um, ahead of time, please read the, you know, booklet or whatever. And I didn't. No one, no <laughs> one in the exit row did. Nobody. I looked around because I'm like, I'm one of these rule followers. So I looked around. Nobody did. So then she came by and she said, did you read the thing? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> they come to me and I said, no. And she's <laughs> I asked you to read it. And everyone else is looking at me in judgment. like. <laughs> and you know what? As I felt like I could lie, right? Because everybody else did. And it's not that big of a deal. But I'm accountable to God. As a Christian, I'm accountable to God. I got to tell the truth. Now, I don't always do everything right. But that moment, I felt convicted, I should say. <laughs> not realizing the consequence. But this is one of those little things that makes up our life. And the difference between what we believe and what is socially acceptable. And I feel like that's what we do when we confess Christian faith. Mm -hmm. We say, I'm accountable to God. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get in trouble if I lie, but I will get in trouble with God. And ultimately, that's what it means to be Christian. I mean, are we saying as a panel at this point, and Dr. Corny, you could jump in on this, or, or, or Dr. Claire, are we kind of saying that to say that I believe is not weaker than saying I know, but we are acknowledging that as Christians, we're not claiming what I guess culturally we would call certainty about our faith. Is certainty something that we've forfeited when we say belief, or is it a different kind of certainty, mm. if that makes sense? I suppose in some ways I think it involves more trust. It trusts in the community, it trusts in the history of the faith. Um, or maybe no is uh, maybe to know has more certainty in some level of it, but I think there's a, a level in which belief, yeah, it might Im it might imply a little bit of uncertainty or the fact it's not empirical knowledge, but it, it is rested on this whole community. But I think that trust and that relationship with all the Christians who've gone before, with this, with the two thousand years of the passing along of the teachings and the traditions of the church, are really important in that. Mm. Yeah, no, I I think that you know, credo, credo as it says, I believe belief is not rational certainty. Um but I think any good philosopher or scientist worth their salt would say again, most of the really important questions that you're going to face in this life are not going to yield to rationally certain answers of the sort that you trot out in the biology lab or that you get on the paper in the math theorem. Um, so then that forces you into this position of being a kind of person who recognizes that you're going to have to believe certain things as pole stars to guide uh, the journey of your life and you have to figure out what those beliefs are. Now granted, I think there's really good reasons to take God, the God of that creed, way more seriously than Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. I mean, mo I'm presumed, does anyone in here still believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy? Not anymore. Don't be afraid. They, not, not anymore, they not anymore but you yeah. did. <laughs> but you applied the principles of reason as you understood them empirically and logically to be like, there just can't be things like Santa Claus as I understood him or the Tooth Fairy. God as known in the Father, Creator, and the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, does not get expunged and wiped away by those same processes of, of reasoning that got rid of the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. Lots of good people have found lots of good reasons to believe in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's, it's one of those things that you're in that terrain where there's a shadow of doubt that will hang over 
the belief, but it's not the kind of doubt that wipes out the possibility of it. And I think to Nijay's point, I love that idea that this creed that you're studying this semester did not come out of thin air. It was a confession. And as far as we know, it came out of around the year 100, 150. It was the confession you would say when you decided to be baptized as a Christian. So you would actually have the pastor ask you, do you believe in God? And you would respond, I believe in God, Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. You believe in the Holy Spirit, etc. So that actually identifies not like a grocery list of things that are kind of hard to believe that you're trying to trick yourself into believing, even though you've never really seen some of them. It's like the decision in front of a group of people. Often you'd be wearing a robe and there was cold water there saying like, I'm going to commit my life to follow this God who's made himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I could end up like this guy Polycarp in the Colosseum burning on a pyre for his faith because he's believing in no gods or the wrong god. So that that's the kind of context you have to think about this sort of believing. I, I wonder if I could follow up on this train of thought with this question. This is from a student named Rob. He says, for a long time I've struggled with determining God's voice from other voices. We know that in the book of Genesis, for example, God just speaks to people, right? Do you ever wonder, like, what, that, what does that voice exactly sound like? God says Morgan to Freeman. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> God says to Jacob, you know, go, you know, go, come back to you, come back to, come back home from where you had stayed with your uncle, or, or God speaks to Joseph in some way, some ephemeral way, you know, maybe less than a voice, but something more than just an intuition. Sometimes the student says, "I'm so sure that a certain voice is from God." While other times, I believe that voice is just my own, or some other kind of voice, maybe not of God. How do you determine which voices or callings are from God or not? I mean, I think it goes along with our question about belief. How would you know when you're hearing something that really is like that? Yeah, um, I've, I have asked this question many times over the years. I remember as a young Christian, um, similar to the age of people in this room, um, I went to the library and I got out all these books on how to discern God's will. I had that same question. Um, I feel like the answer can be really complicated, but the simple answer that I've come to um, actually comes from the Gospel of John. When Jesus says, you know, the disciples say, we hope you never leave, you know, this is great. And Jesus is like, I have to leave, I have to go. They said, don't go. And he says, I have to go, but just know it'll be better that I go because I'm going to send another advocate, another person to help you, the Holy Spirit. And that's partly what we're talking about, is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And I have children, too, 7, 9, and 12. And my son, who's, who's 9, he asks you know, these questions, how do I know if God's speaking to me? And um, I think there are occasions where God does speak to people in, in more direct and clear ways. But what Jesus says to disciples is, the Holy Spirit will remind you of my words. So the Bible becomes then the standard against which we compare anything that we feel like God is telling us. And um, so God may be telling you something. Um, my philosophy is, approach to that is, you check it against scripture uh, and you seek out counsel from others. Over, uh, in the evenings I'm reading through the book of Acts out loud with my children. I've never done this before with that book and they're really loving it. And over and over again, the disciples, the apostles say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. 
So both those pieces are there of listening to the Spirit of God and wise counsel from others. So scripture, wise counsel from others, listening to the Spirit. And the last thing I'll say about that is, but listening to the Spirit requires meditation. Meditation on scripture, quietness in your life. That's something that we find really, really hard to do. Um, and ultimately, when I'm checking about what God's leading me towards, I'm wondering, will this bring glory to God? Will this bring glory to God? And those are the kinds of mm. questions I think through with that. Yeah. Dr. Corning, what do you think about this? That was a great answer. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the community piece is the, was the thing that came to mind. Because I think we often think that, that you do that in a, uh, you know, just by yourself. But that discernment, the discernment of having a community around you, especially with, with decisions that are big decisions that mm -hmm. are going to necessitate a real change in your life. I mm -hmm. think that's important. Yeah. I want to connect this question of belief, this topic that we're on, with the question of the Bible. In particular for this week, I asked you to read a couple of chapters in a textbook, which were kind of like a whirlwind tour of this question of, you start reading the Bible, how are you supposed to read it? How are you supposed to interpret? And then the question of, how did we even get the Bible that we do have? Um, and we were introduced to these ideas through those textbook readings and also through the videos that I asked you to watch about these questions of canon, how do we know which books are, and writings are supposed to be in there to begin with? Also the question of textual criticism, which is a question of you had scribes hand copying for a long time. They made mistakes. We know this. How do we know what the original words really were? And also a question of translation. Um, we're reading whatever manuscripts we read, we're likely reading it in translation. If for this class, for example, we're reading the NIV 2011. It's in English. Is it a good translation? Is it right? Is translation always an act of interpretation? And thus, does that put you at a distance from the text that we'd love to overcome, but we just can't, you know? How does this question of belief function for you all, for panelists, Dr. Claire? How does it function for you in terms of the Bible and just trusting it? I mean, there's so many dimensions here, right, that we could go into, but like, how would we know that the Bible that we have is the right Bible? Is this a question of, of a lot of diligent study? Is it something we just accept from our community? Is it both? How, how do you think about this? Yeah, that's, I'd love to know if you guys have any questions on that, fire them in or um, raise a hand, because I'd love to know how you're wrestling with it. Here's some of the ways I've wrestled with it. I didn't realize what a long, tortuous process it was for us to come up with what we have as the Bible. The Old Testament, 66 books, I understand a little less, and there's an indebtedness to Judaism there. But the, even the 27 books in the New Testament that we think of as canon, as far as I understand it, it takes the, a couple centuries into the church. So it's not as if the New Testament dropped out of the sky, you know, and the Apostle Paul just threw it at everybody in the early church. But there were actually like a couple other gospels that didn't make it into the New Testament in the four that were canonized, as we call it. And in this process, actually, the church was deciding who they thought Jesus Christ was as a way of naming which books should be in the New Testament. So when you read the creed, the Apostles' Creed, know that that was being written at the same time they were deciding on which books should be in the New Testament. So the answers that are implicit in, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ's only Son, Holy Spirit, and the church, those were the answers that were guiding the decisions to put some Gospels in and some Gospels out. I have a New Testament scholar, so I'm kind of sheepish on <laughs> saying too much. But I just want to highlight two things. 
That is, if you're going to believe in the Bible and allow it to be authoritative, you're going to have to recognize that the church, the early church, you're indebted to that church. Faith is not a solo individual cowboy performance. It is a community's decision. A, B, it's a community being led by the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that third part of the creed that the Holy Spirit is working with the church to identify the words that are most authoritative. I have more to say, but yeah. Can I pitch this to Dr. Gupta by incorporating another student question? Um, in the textbook, you know, we'd suggested like, what is the, we brought this issue, what does the Bible actually say about itself? And it's, it's surprisingly sparse in terms of programmatic statements. You have this thing, and I think 2 Timothy 3, where, you know, the author says that all scripture is theopneustos, this word. You're a Greek scholar, you can unpack that. But like, what does the Bible say about itself? Does the Bible use words like infallibility or inerrancy about itself? Or does the Bible speak about itself in a different way? How would you characterize it? So um, the Bible is a collection of different books and of different types of genres. So the Bible doesn't talk about itself as the Bible. That's, you know, I think that's pretty obvious, but it's helpful to know um, because it's such a diverse collection of material. But Christians and Jews reflect on this uh, uh, collection as a whole because they believe that it is especially given to us to reveal who God is. Now, that's helpful to know because no one saw the Bible as teaching everything about everything. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, and so we say, oh, they didn't, you know, so, so there's something I call folk apologetics. Folk apologetics is where people who don't know what they're talking about say things about the Bible that aren't true. <laughs> so uh, I, I remember hearing a preacher once say, um, God taught Job, God taught Job that the earth was spherical because it, in Job it says that the earth hangs on nothing. Um, and therefore God revealed the science of the spherical nature of the earth to Job. That's not true. All over the Old Testament they talk about the earth resting on pillars. Okay, the f have you ever heard about the four corners of the earth, right? Four corners of the earth. Ancient people did not believe in a spherical earth. So to believe that God revealed everything right away, scientifically, that's why I call folk apologetics. Um, there's a theory called divine accommodation, where God doesn't reveal everything right away to everybody because their brains will explode. <laughs> so he reveals things in ways that people understand. Let me give you an example. When my kids were little and I taught them why they should brush their teeth, I told them because their teeth have sugar monsters. All food, all food, you might not know this, all food has sugar monsters, <laughs> okay? Whether or not it has sugar or not. All food has sugar monsters. And brushing your teeth, the toothpaste is really like a, an acid or a chemical that kills sugar monsters. And then any sugar monster not killed by the acid, they fall into your stomach and they die in hot lava. So. Do, was I lying to them? In a sense, I was lying to them because there are no sugar monsters. But this is my form of divine accommodation because I taught them what they could understand that gets them to the truth. Right? Now, God doesn't lie, um, but God isn't going to reveal full science in the middle of, you know, first you know, millennium BC because um, they're not ready for that kind of information. And so God gives all kinds of analogies and all kinds of information. So it's because the Old Testament and the New Testament are so full of things like poetry, right? So many different genres, it's hard to refer to things as all factually correct, like a parable. Like a parable is not intended to be factually correct because it's, it's a form of art. 
the, the, well, the way I explain how I think the biblical authors viewed it is Scripture is authored both by humans and by God, and humans are flawed, but in no way does the human element of Scripture impede the perfect way that God wants to talk to us. Does that make sense? So I'd, I'd rather refer to it as, there's a Greek word, teleos, which means complete or perfect. And I'd rather refer to Scripture as perfect in the sense that it tells us everything we need to know about God and about how to live our lives in order to follow God's ways. I think that's the way that Scripture tends to talk about itself. This mm -hmm. idea of God breathed means that the Holy Spirit got involved in making sure that what mm -hmm. we read is what God wants to communicate to us. I wonder here, in our, in our closing minute or two here, and we only have about three minutes left before we've got to get on to some other things. I wonder if I could get just a short statement from each of the panelists on this question. All this heady stuff is a lot of work. Hopefully you're starting to see that. Maybe even just with the readings this, this week or some of these considerations, the mind is now being flooded with some, some tough considerations. Is it really worth it to do the work on our own? Would it really be better if, if we just had a trusted individual who just told us what to think? If you think that about the Bible, that's great. That's enough for me. I don't need to study this. I don't, maybe don't even need to read it as long as I know that it's there and it's functioning and maybe my soul will be saved. Why get involved? I mean, what pitch would you give to a group of students, many of whom are freshmen, but throughout all the years, to say, yeah, this work, doing th what we might call theology, an organized study of these kinds of things, is really actually worth it and worth doing on your own. I know it's hard to give a statement like that quickly, but briefly, what would you say, Dr. Claire, to that? And then just down the line. Yeah, I guess I would just as an exhortation to you all, there's a really rich connection in the Bible and in Christian theology between believing something with your mind and loving it with your will, loving it with your affections and with your heart. You get this really clearly in the Psalms. The psalmist is continually crying out like, my soul thirsts for you, God. I cry out for you in a dry and weary land, etc. So I, I guess at the end of the day, it's, there's an inseparability between what you believe about God up in your head cognitively and how you love and seek and hunger and thirst for God with your heart and with your affections. And so the work, the work is, is twofold, actually. So as you approach the creed this semester and try to think through some of these really difficult issues, it's actually inseparable from your heart's relationship with your creator and that that I think is a really um, it's a big challenge but it's exciting at the same time uh, so quickly I would say uh, first of all if you are a Christian then if you're not willing to do the theology if you're not willing to do that because theology is just the beliefs and the understanding of what we under what we believe about God you're basically saying I want to be in relationship with you God but I don't really want to know you like it's too much work um, which doesn't seem to really be <laughs> the way you should be doing it. Also, if you claim the title Christian, you represent the faith, and you're going to get people who know the faith very well. Um, you may already have, have done this, and they'll ask you questions about the faith, um, and I think it's important to be able to speak intelligibly and understand it, and, work, and that means really understanding what it means to believe, what you believe as a Christian. What does Christianity actually teach? 
uh, which is beyond just the salvation level. Um, and if you're at this place, if God had call, has called you to this place, it's because you are going to work in an intellectual community, and that's going to be really important. If you're not a Christian, I think it is important to understand one of the major faith traditions on the planet. Um, and to know what it is. Again, beyond just a basic, uh, Christians believe in Jesus, something about Jesus. Um, th that is really important to understand those ideas, as much as it's important to understand the major theological concepts of Judaism and Islam and Hinduism. These are all major world faiths. I think we sometimes choose a church or a religion like we're shopping, and we're trying to find something that fits what we want. But the message I would give you is, God doesn't need you. You need him. And the reason I say that is the first confession of a Christian or someone who wants to be a Christian is, I am sick. Jesus says, I didn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. And so the only reason I'm a Christian, the only reason I'm here is because I know I'm sick and I need help. I know I'm a dependent and I need help. And that for me drives everything. And I, and I tell people, you know, I minister to Hindus, I minister to a lot of different people, and I say to them, if you feel like everything's good and I don't need help and I'm a strong and healthy person and I don't have problems, you don't need God. Honestly, you don't even need to be in the classroom. But for me, um, I need God. I need help. I need a lifeline. I've not had a hard life, but I know that I'm sick. And to me, that's the cornerstone. It's not shopping. It's recognizing that as humans, and as humans in a sinful and fallen world, we need God, and he's gracious, and he gives us life through his son and the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's, that's, that's the whole thing for me. If anyone wants to stay after class for a minute, by the way, just quickly, Dr. Corning has brought a copy, we didn't get to show it, but of a King James Bible, a very old English Bible from the year 1621. <laughs> If you'd like to touch it or look at its pages, it's beautiful. You're invited to do that afterward. Would you join me in thanking the panelists for this?